Well, this morning, Luke chapter 8, most commentators note that Luke 8 is a transition in the ministry of Jesus. It marks a transition from one period of time to another. Before Luke chapter 8, we have what most people would call the grassroots ministry of Jesus, okay? This is the ministry of Jesus where He is going home to home. He is having dinner in people's homes. He is shaking hands with individuals. By and large, this is not a very public ministry of Jesus. Not all of Israel has heard of Jesus before chapter 8. But as I said, most people point to chapter 8 as the, the moment or the point of transition where the public, the very public ministry of Jesus begins. From this point forward in the Gospel of Luke, you'll see that he's kind of a notorious character that He is well known by many, that all of Israel has understood something of what Jesus claims to be. That's why in verse 1 this morning it says, afterward He went through cities and villages. He's beginning to enter now into the cities. And verse 4 says, and when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to Him, He said in a parable, and so people from town after town are gathering to Him. The crowds, are, the crowds are becoming greater and greater. And as you might imagine now from Luke 8 and moving forward into the rest of this Gospel, there will be a variety of people in the audience when Jesus speaks. There will be some of His own disciples who believe and trust in Him. There will be some genuine seekers who say they're very interested in hearing more about this Jesus. But there will be many, what I like to call, looky-loos. I don't know if you ever heard that phrase, looky-loos. Now these are the people, when you put your house up for sale, they come to the open house, not because they want to buy a house or they're even interested in purchasing. They're the ones who come simply to see what's going on in the inside of the house. They've seen it from the road, but they're curious, just to observe, to kick the tires. They're the looky-loos. There's a lot of now looky-loos in the crowd when Jesus speaks. These are the ones who have heard from their neighbors. There's something significant going on. There's some very important person in the crowd square, in the town square, and they, they go to here simply to be involved, to see what's happening. As Jesus speaks to these large crowds made up of a variety of different people, there's a question that's going to become more and more pressing in the life and the ministry of Jesus. And the question is very simple. If Jesus is who He says He is, if He's the Savior of sinners, if He's the Lord, if He is actually God, then why do so few people follow Him? And you could see why that's an important question. Why do so few people follow Him? Why, when He speaks to the spiritual leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, why do they by and large reject Him? Why when Jesus goes to both towns and cities and speaks to those who have wealth and those in poverty, no matter who He speaks to, why does it seem as if very few people are interested in His message? You see, Jesus, in a very proactive way, anticipates that question. Before anyone ever asks the question, Jesus uh, uh, is proactively engaging it and He provides for us a parable to understand the answer. You see this parable in Luke chapter 8? 
most people call it the first parable of Jesus. Now, you remember last week we had a mini parable, the two debtors. But this is pointed to as the first substantive parable in the ministry of Jesus. It opens the floodgates for the other parables. In Mark's gospel and here in Luke's gospel, it marks that point of transition. Following this, we will see many parables. But this first parable, Jesus gives us to explain the work that He's about to do. This parable explains what Jesus is doing. He is going to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. And when He does, He anticipates what the response will be. And so He gives a parable that we might understand the response of the people. A parable that makes sense of His ministry. That's what Luke chapter 8 is doing this morning. Now, as we look at this parable, as you'll see in, in the insert in your bulletin, I've I've just outlined three different questions or points that we can ask or observe about this passage, okay? So, first of all, this parable provides simple images to explain complex truths, all right? We'll look at those simple images. The second thing is this parable provides context for why so many people reject the Lord Jesus. That will help us to understand something of what we experience as we share the gospel with our neighbors and our friends and our family members, okay? The last point about this parable is that this parable explains to us what it looks like to rest in Christ, what it looks like to rest or remain in Christ. And so the first thing that we're going to talk about this morning is how this parable explains with simple images, very complex truths. Now look at the text. It's so interesting how Jesus begins sharing this parable. You'll see in verse 4, it says, When a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to Him, He said in a parable, and then He begins to share this parable. But it's very interesting because Jesus gives no lead-in into the parable. He doesn't even use the common phrases that He often uses. The kingdom of God is like a sower who sows seed. He simply jumps into the storytelling. This reminds me of a professor that I had in seminary. We had this one professor who would be in the midst of lecturing, and he'd be in the middle of a sentence, and he would stop, and he would pause, and we would kind of lean forward in our seats, ready to hear the rest of the sentence, and he would pause, and then he'd begin telling a different story abruptly, and we would be sitting there wondering, does the story connect with the point he was making? Has he simply lost track of his thought, and he just began a new thought? What exactly is going on here? This is the feeling when the crowds gather to Jesus and He says, there's a sower in the field sowing seeds. But He begins sharing this parable in a very abrupt way. Now let me read it to you. A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot. And the birds of the air, they devoured it. Some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Some fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. Some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And as he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, this is one of my favorite parables, not because of the substance of the parable so much, but because Jesus explains it. And it's not like one of those parables that you gather together with your Bible studies and you say, okay, here's a parable, but nobody knows what it means. Let's just take a shot at it. What do you think it means? Well, what do you think it means? I don't know. 
This could mean that or it could mean this. In this parable, Jesus explains the imagery. What a wonderful blessing it is. And I can imagine the people who were gathered to hear this, they said uh, to themselves, you know this Jesus, I don't know what the big hubbub is about Him because He's just speaking about farming. I mean, He's giving us a picture about sowing seeds, and it's not even really a good picture because everybody knows you ought to sow the seeds in the good soil. That's an easy one. But Jesus gives this parable because it paints a very practical picture that every person in the audience would have understood. It's a very uh, agrarian culture that Jesus speaks to. And every person in the audience was either a farmer or they knew somebody who was a farmer. Every person was a farmer or they had experienced farming to some degree. And the, the farming practice that Jesus speaks about is actually consonant with what the farming practices were of this day and age. The farmers would throw the seed all along in the whole field and around the field, and then they would bring their plows behind, and then they would plow. They'd plow the seed under the soil. And so as Jesus spoke these words, every person in the audience said, yeah, we get it. We do that every year. That picture makes complete sense to us. This picture would have been clearer to them than it is even to us they would have intuitively understood the words that Christ was saying. Now think about some of the images that Jesus provides in this parable. First, the sower. First image is the sower. Only two things that are important I want to point out. First of all, the sower is one, okay, in this parable. Some people, having read this parable, perceive it to be four separate sowers. One who sows the first seed, one who sows the second seed, but this picture is a picture of one sower. As Jesus often does in His parables, describing God, He uses imagery like the master of the house, the head of the household, the one who sows the seeds. And so this picture is a picture of God. Now, it might be God the Father, God the Son. In Matthew's Gospel, as He tells three different parables, He says at one point, the sower is the Son of Man. That's what Matthew says. And so it seems to be that maybe this is a picture of Jesus Himself. This parable concerns God. It has to do with the things of God and His interactions with this world. The second image that's provided in this parable is the image of the seed. Thankfully, Jesus tells us what the seed is, but as you're reading, you'll notice there's nothing odd or abnormal about the seed. The seed is scattered into the dirt. The seed takes root. The seed grows. But there's one thing that stands out as uniquely odd. Because verse 8 says that as the seed took root, it yielded a hundredfold. Okay, if you've ever had a garden, uh, you know that yielding a hundredfold is not realistic. Okay, if you get one fold, you're doing pretty good, aren't you? All right? So this seed uh, seems to have in the good soil a very prominent, exponential, almost unbelievable yield of fruit. Now, again, Jesus later says, the seed is the Word of God. And if you read this parable in different Gospels, there'll be a slightly different phrase used to describe the seed. Matthew simply calls it the Word. Mark calls it the Word of the Kingdom. Here, Luke calls it the Word of God. But the seed that's being sowed by the sower is the Word that comes from the mouth of God. It is the Word of God which we have contained here in our Bibles. The Word of God given through His mouth, uh, through human authors, given and delivered to us, the church. 
This is the Word of God. Now I want to pause here for a second and reflect just for a moment on the Word in this parable. You see, because this parable is all about heart change, right? We see the soils representing the the conditions of heart, and we see the things that have effect in the heart, the, the seed that takes root, and in other hearts, the seed doesn't take root. But this parable is all about the changing heart. And the only thing in this parable that has the power or the efficacy to affect any change in the individuals that are mentioned here is the Word of God. The Word of God in this parable is effective and powerful. The Word of God takes root and it blossoms and it yields fruit. It is the Word of God. And I want to talk about that Word of God, okay? If, you've, if, you, if you're not a Christian or maybe you've never been in a Christian church or maybe you're very new to Christianity, you might not be used to the phrase that Christians use when we talk about the Word of God as being living and active. But the Bible says the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Dividing between soul and spirit, bone and marrow, deciphering the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And when we talk about the Word of God as being living and active, we actually mean that it is living and active. And you might be thinking, what in the world are you talking about? Okay, I look at the words on the page, and they're just words. They don't move. They don't reach up and grab me. They're just written here in this book. And I'll tell you the truth, every other human book, that's the case. But this, the Word of God, by the power of the Spirit, is living and active. It does reach into the hearts of men. It pierces. It deciphers the thoughts and the intentions. It affects the stone-cold hearts of men to bring about an understanding of our own neediness and sin. The Word of God is indeed living and active. That is what Christ speaks about as He speaks about this Word. Now, I mention that to you because I believe that in the church today, there are many who would not agree to this. There are many who would not teach this. Here is one quote from a Christian author. I'll tell you, one in probably every two books that I read nowadays that are written by those who claim to be Christians would undermine this idea of the Word of God. Listen to what this one author says. He said, most Presbyterians do not believe in the Bible. Now that was news to me. Most Presbyterians do not believe in the Bible. We believe in the Lord of heaven and earth. Now obviously that would provoke the astonished reply, what? You don't believe in the Bible? And we would respond, yes. We don't believe in the Bible. We believe in God. We don't rest our faith in a book. We rest it in God's living presence. You see the the problem with that, right? It's a bunch of sophisticated gobbledygook. It makes no sense. How can you have Jesus without having the things that Jesus affirmed and believed in Himself? How can you have Jesus apart from His Word? The very thing He's affirming in this parable here. I tell you the truth, this movement in modern Christianity is just a, a, a fancier idolatry that has a covering or a facade that appears to be Christianity. But a rejection of the Word of God while still trying to take Jesus is just having a designer Jesus. It's having Jesus on your own terms, okay? As Christ shares this parable here, He points to the Word of God. 
that must take root in the heart if, there, if it's to yield any produce at all. So the Word of God being living and active is necessary for the Christian. Think about this. If someone came to you and they said, listen, I've got this thing, it's living and active, and I'm going to give it to you. And this living and active thing, if it's just nurtured in your life, it's going to produce this good fruit. It will encourage you. It will exhort you. It will tell you about eternity. It will lead you to salvation. It will show you the desperation of your own heart. It will produce all good things in your life. Of course, you would take it and you would nurture it, wouldn't you? And you would water it. And you would give it to your children. And you would speak about it. You would talk about it when you came and when you went. Uh, You would make sure that your life revolved around this thing. That's the way that Christ describes the Word of God in this parable. It's a living plant. Okay, that's the seed. The sower is God Himself. The seed is the Word of God. And then we get to the four soils. Four soils that are mentioned here are the four heart conditions. Jesus provides four different heart conditions that the seed meets. Now, there's the heart condition of the well-worn path where the seed falls onto it. There's the condition of the rocky soil. There's the soil that seems pretty good, but it's got the briars and the thorns in it. And then we've got that, that good soil where the seed takes root. And this gets us into the second point that I have on your bulletin this morning. Uh, this parable provides context for why many people reject Christ. And after all, again, that's the question, isn't it? Because you think about, for instance, the ministries of Paul and Peter, they were very productive ministries. They preached the gospel, and in some days, 3,000 people were saved. And again, we might ask the question, well, why, when Christ proclaims the Word, why are many rejecting? Was He not charismatic enough? Is His argument not convincing enough? Did He get all the facts right, but He's just not personable enough? Uh, what was going on, right? This begins to explain some of those questions, okay? And the first three soils we get, we'll call them the soils of rejection, okay? Now, I want to point out something, okay? The soils of rejection in this parable, they outnumber the soils of reception three to one, okay? And this parable doesn't even include those who have never heard the Word of God, right? So, we've got a whole other category not even mentioned in this parable. One of the pictures that Christ is beginning to paint is that the road to destruction is a wide road, And this is the way it will be as Christ continues to proclaim the Word. That the temptations of the world loom large in the vision of the world. And this will be the case with many. Now look at the various soils. First of all, the seed that falls onto that pathway. Okay, Jesus describes it in verse 11 and 12. He continues to to say exactly what this represents. This This is the person who having heard the Word of God, it lands on that pathway and before it ever takes root, Satan himself snatches the word up and it's gone, okay? And all of us know people like this. We say, why, when we proclaim the gospel to our family or our friends or our neighbors, why do we share clearly with them the hope of salvation in Jesus Christ and they say, thanks, but no thanks? I'm not interested. I have no intention of ever doing that or being part of that, all right? Why do they do that? Satan snatches up the seed. The seed is gone before it ever takes root. Now, I was thinking about, okay, practically, what does that mean for us? If we're in a situation where we find someone who the Word never takes root, I, I think the only thing for us to know is we continue to put seeds on that path, okay? 
And you may put seeds on that path, and there may be thousands of seeds on that path, and one might take root. But the only thing to do is continue to sprinkle the Word of God on that well-worn pathway. Satan's going to swoop in and take up the seed, but one of those, by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, may take root. And so we continue sprinkling the Word of God. Now, the second type of soil. Second type of soil is the rocky soil. And you, you, you read there, it says in, in this passage in verse 7 or verse 6, some fell on the rock and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And the picture of, of this heart condition is one where the Word of God meets this person and at first they receive with joy, right? And it begins to take root. But here in Luke, Luke says it had no moisture, so it withered away. Matthew says that the roots were so shallow because of the rocky soil that the sun burned it up. Mark says the same thing, but the picture is very simple. The Word of God landed, it began to take root, but very quickly, because it wasn't nurtured, because it had no place to go deeply rooted, it withered away. And the Word of God quickly dissolved in their hearts, right? Now this is the person, again, you've encountered people like this. You run into them in the grocery store and you say, hey, weren't, weren't you part of our church? Didn't I see you up front? You professed faith, you joined, you were baptized, but then like, where did you go? And the, the person will say to you, well, it's just, it wasn't what I expected, okay? I thought it would be different. I didn't think that Jesus was like that, okay? Or I, I imagined that everything would be better in my life, but it just hasn't been like that, okay? And so that, that seed sprouts up it begins with joy, and then it quickly withers. That's the second soil. The third soil that's described here is even more interesting. The third soil is, for all intents and purposes, is a rich soil. It has the nutrients it needs. There's a good balance of sun and of water. The seed takes root. It begins to grow. It looks like everything's great. But you know what happens? The briars and the thorns, they love good soil too. And the briars and the thorns come up, and Jesus says, these are the people who, uh, amidst the cares and the concerns of this world, they are choked out by those things, and eventually the briars and the thorns, they just waste away. They make that plant wither until the Word of God is diminished and finally lost in the life of that person. Now again, we, we all know people like that, okay? We've all encountered those who have been here with us who have professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but the cares and the concerns of this world, they choked out their testimony. They choked out the Word of God until it couldn't even be discerned in their life. And finally, they reject Christ. Now, we'll talk about that third soil in a second because there's something interesting comparing that to the fourth soil. But let me ask you then, why do you think Jesus describes these three soils to us? What would be the benefit I think there are a few. I think, first of all, it's a, it's a warning to many. This is kind of how we perceive the word being received and then quickly lost. It's a warning for care and concern for those who first receive the gospel. But I also believe that for us who are in Christ Jesus, this is a wonderful moment where we get to see kind of what's happening behind the curtain. It's a wonderful moment where uh, Jesus says to us, let me explain to you why so many reject the gospel. And had we not known this, we might be going about in our regular lives and say, man, uh, this person that I love has not received the gospel yet. This person who's my neighbor has not received the gospel. I've been proclaiming it forever. Is Jesus not on the throne? 
Does he not have power and authority over these things? Has he simply forgotten these people that I love and I care about? Jesus, by providing this parable, he says to you and I, I I haven't forgotten. As a matter of fact, I've planned for these things. They're part of my plan. That's, I believe, what Jesus means when he says to the disciples, to you, in verse 10, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they're in parables. To you it has been given to perceive to look and to see, to understand, and by understanding to glorify your Father in heaven. That you might say, I don't know how this all works, but I know that God has set these things in motion, that He has planned these things, that His hand is upon them, that they are working for His glory and for our good. How that is or how it will be, I don't know. But it gives us confidence in the work of Christ in this world. Now, the third thing, as I mentioned on that handout, the third thing is this parable shows us what remaining in Christ looks like. Now, here's kind of where this really begins to apply to us. I imagine that for most of you, you read this parable and you say, you know what, I'm not the first soil, I'm not the second soil. That's easy for me, okay? Uh, The Word of God has been delivered to me. It has begun to take root in my heart. I know that to be true. I sense it in my own heart, and it hasn't quickly withered. And that's what the first two soils have in common. They're very quick. Okay? This is is whether, you know, uh, the Word of God was delivered and not received at all, or it was delivered and began to take root and quickly withered. These are very quick things. They happen over the course of a short period of time. But I imagine as you read this parable, there's maybe a little bit of apprehension in your heart when you think about the third soil and you think about the fourth soil, okay? Because both of them have a lot in common. They're good soil. The seed took root. The Word of God began to sprout up. There seems to be some yield. And, and only after time was the third soil, was the seed of the third soil choked out. But you see, with the third soil, that's the key. This is a, a long time developing. And we might ask the question, well, how do we know that we're not the third soil? How do we know that the Word of God won't ultimately be choked out of our hearts? That the briars won't ensnare us, entangle us, and choke out the Word of God? Now let me say, first of all, this parable is not dealing with uh, spiritual categories. And that is to say, we confidently know that when Christ is at work in the heart of a believer, that He will bring that work to fruition. People have said, once saved, always saved. Perseverance of the saints. That is all true. When Christ begins a work in the heart of a man, when He gives the gift of faith, God brings that work to fruition. There's no doubt. This parable is dealing with outward categories. Okay? The outward categories of receiving the Word, it taking root, but wondering what will be the end result. And I tell you, I believe this parable for the church is meant to be a warning. It's meant to be a warning. We're meant to look at this parable and say, wow, the third soil seemed to be everything going well, and then the briars and the thorns came. And you know what? I need to be on the lookout for the briars and the thorns. Okay, because as I said before, we all know people who are like the third soil. We all know people. There are people who have sat in these seats. Not exactly these seats. These are new chairs, okay? 
So not many have had the opportunity to sit in these chairs, but there are many who have sat out there with you. And they worked with you in VBS. And they came to Sunday school with you. And they went to the men's and the women's Bible studies. And they sat here for many years hearing the Word of God. But at some point along the way, they said, no, that's not for me anymore. And so this parable is a warning for the church, a warning of the weeds and the briars. Now, as I was thinking about this, I, I thought about the many people that I know who have walked away, walked away from Christ, walked away from the church, those who have rejected salvation in Christ, who seem to be Christians for many years. And as I thought about them, I thought, you know what, they, they had a few things in common. I think it's worth sharing with you. You know, many people today will say things like, uh, I've got this new job, and it's a really great job, and I just have to let you know, our family won't be coming to church anymore. I have to work Sundays, but I've got this great job, okay? Some people will say, you know, we've got this child who's a really great athlete, and they've got to do this sport, and they're on the travel team, and so for the next five years, you won't see us at church, Okay, but it's just five years. Some people, even that I've talked to recently, have said, you know, this whole pandemic has given me a new mindset. It's really not safe to be together with other people, so you won't see us in church again. We've decided it's safer to just always be at home. Now, here's the thing, okay? Those three concerns in and of themselves, they're good things. Right? A good job to support and provide for your family. Your children are good at sports. That's wonderful. Okay, you have a concern for your own safety and health, and that's good. That's important to us. We, we need to value that. But I tell you the truth. Every person that I've encountered who has walked away from the church, for the most part, it began with something like that. Okay? It began there with small things. It's not, it's not bad to miss a Sunday of church. I mean, it's better to be here for church, but it's not as if we say, well, you, you, you can't be a Christian if you miss a Sunday, but, but those people who began in that spot, it became easier and easier for them to accept the things of the world and to reject the things of God. It, it became easier and easier for them to be ensnared with the cares and the concerns of this world. That's what Jesus says. He says they are choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. And I think the warning for us is very simple. When we begin there, it is very easy for us to continue down that path. When we begin to choose the things of this world and not the things of God. When we begin to rest in the things of this world and not the things of God. Those decisions become easier and easier and more natural. That's the warning of the parable. That's the briars and the thorns that choke out the Word of God. Those are the things that crowd in upon the Word until the Word is diminished and the things of this world have become big and they loom large in our vision. Now, the beauty of this parable is the key for the church, okay? The beauty of this parable is the key for the church because the key of the parable that Jesus shares here is letting the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. As the Apostle Paul says, letting the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. You think about it, okay? 
Again, the, this, the word of God in this parable is the, the substantive, the thing that affects change in the hearts and the minds of those who are being described here. And many today, many Christians say, whatever are we going to do in this world? How is the church to survive? What about our children? What's going to happen to them? And what if we're told we can't meet? What then? However are we going to move forward in this world, right? And as complex as those questions are, the solutions are very simple. Don't overthink it. Letting the Word of Christ dwell richly in us, taking root, flourishing within us. This is how Christ leads us in this parable. The question is simply the Word of God. We share the Word of God. We preach the Word of God. We proclaim the Word of God. We, we give it to those uh, who are younger than us. We speak about it to those who are older than us. We sing about it. We declare it. We live it. We memorize it. The Word of God taking root in our hearts will produce. As Christ says here, it produces a hundredfold. The Word of God produces a hundredfold. So as you think about the questions of today, as you wonder about the things of tomorrow, I want to encourage you that Jesus gives a timeless parable for timeless problems to exhort and encourage those who are of the faith that they would see the Word of God planted within them. They would know the seed has been scattered here. The seed has taken root. The seed of the Word of God will produce in us that the glory of Christ might be declared in the world, that we might be saved and preserved for that final day when He returns. All glory is His. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We come before you this morning, we thank you for this parable, and we know, Lord God, that this is a challenging parable. We ask that you would work by your Spirit to continue to nurture and to feed and to grow the Word of God that now dwells within us. Reminded of how Jeremiah spoke of that future Word that would dwell within us. And so, uh, Lord God, we ask that as that Word is rooted within us, that You would protect us from the, the thorns and the briars of this world. That You would protect us from the, the things of this world that might consume our attention, that might draw us from You, that might fill our gaze, distract us, from Your glory and Your Word. We ask, Lord God, that You would constantly remind us of Your Word, that You would call our attention to Your Word, that You would, Lord, plant that Word deep in our hearts, and that the Word of God would grow and flourish within us, that we would worship Christ Jesus who is the Word. We thank You, and we praise You, and we ask that You would be glorified in everything we say and do this morning as we continue our worship here today. In Your name we pray, amen.